We are in part 40 of a 40-part series. We are wrapping the entire thing up. Yeah, come on. How many were here the whole time? Anybody here the whole time? Yeah. All right, that's a super long series. And you're like, man, that, that sounds like that would have been boring. Uh, it was actually fascinating. I learned a ton uh, walking line by line through the book of Acts. And sure enough, in order to squish it all in there, we did some uh, maneuvering here at the end. Uh, for example, can we appreciate Pastor Brian Kylie preaching last week, right? Yeah, so I dumped on him five chapters uh, because I'm the boss. <laughs> so anyway, uh, save the best for me. <laughs> we'll close it out. Uh, what do we learn, kids? We learn that you want to be the boss. Okay, praise God. <laughs> now, what he taught us and how he led us through those five chapters, very few people can do. He is that gifted, he's that good at what he does, and he did it flawlessly. And so I'm gonna recap a little bit of that here in a moment, but I'm gonna draw your attention to the fill in the blank with, with a few things. And the first one begins with a story. We're gonna go back to 1993. I'm talking about a very specific date, May 7th, 1993. Anybody remember 1993? Yeah. Woo, yeah, grunge. Praise God, okay, anyway, so, in, in May 7, 1993, there was two young men. They were really on fire for the Lord. They were young Christian men, which meant they were awkward. They decided that they were going to utilize their kind of hobby of magic. And I'm talking about not the game. I'm talking about magic like sleight of hand. And I'm talking about pick a card. I'm talking about that kind of thing, right? And I love magic, so I'm a nerd right there with them, right? But they were using that as a bit of an evangelistic tool. They would go into different areas and they would do magic. Like they'd go into restaurants and be with wait staff. And as the night grew on, they would use that to start conversations and be able to share the Lord. It was, it was really kind of revolutionary and innovative, and they had a lot of boldness in doing so. Well, on May 7th in the evening, they decided to go down to a restaurant that was on the corner of Howe and Hurley. Anybody know where Howe and Hurley is down in Sacramento? Okay, way back in the day, it used to be called Tequila Willie's was a location there. That changed to El Torito, and there was a young waitress that was there, and she was working that night shift and, and she was kind of going by the table and, and these guys were doing the magic stuff. Well, normally she just kind of blow past and it was no big deal, but somewhat she got her, they got her attention and as they were having the conversation, they mentioned they were Christians. Now, normally that would not be her gig, right? She grew up around the church, but, but it wasn't really, that was not her passion in life. That wasn't really a personal thing for her. She had been a lot to church, but that wasn't really up in her, right? So, so the reason why it kind of caught her attention was that she had been going through a difficult time, and her mom had prayed and said, I'm going to pray that you find some Christian friends. Now, that's not normally something she would say, so it was kind of ringing in her head, I need healthier friends. I need Christian friends. So she found some Christians that are her age. You know, what are the chances? So she gets into a conversation with them. They were bold enough to ask, do you want to go to church with us tomorrow? This is a Saturday night. Now, trying to go out and asking somebody if they want to go to church and you've never met them before, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, once again, reflecting on what her mom said, she's thinking, what do I got to lose? Cool, I'll meet you in the morning at the church. Where's it at? So she goes to the church service. Church is not unusual to her. But for whatever reason, that day, things just resonated differently. 
whether it was the desperation of her life or what it was just the kindness of the Lord, things just began to soak in and it felt more true and more real. When she went home that day, in the quietness of her own room in her apartment, she gave her life to the Lord. What's intriguing is that they said, all right, what are you doing tonight? She's like, well, I'm working. They're like, well, we go to this kind of college worship thing. Afterwards, we go to a coffee shop if you would like to join us. She's like, I don't know. We'll see. Well, after work, she decides, yeah, it's a little bit late. I'll go over. So she goes over and hangs out with more awkward Christian kids and and as she's hanging out there, up walks more weird people, right? So this, this guy and this girl, one guy just looks like a total drug addict. I mean, he's just, he's skinny and long hair and weird and all this stuff and wearing a big cross and leather jacket. You would think it was the 80s. It was not. Nobody notified this young man it was the 90s. But anyway... He was still living in that land. So he, uh, they came up and they all sat down together and she made the mistake of, of asking him questions about the Lord. Well, he, of course, as he normally does, he talked way too long. And he was talking about God, talking about, talking about God and ended up, they, they kind of got into a discipleship relationship where they, he was discipling her and, uh, for about six weeks and everything. Well, it was that night, May 8th, that I met my wife, Susie. And yeah, praise God, right? We've been together for over 30 years, and I was the weird drug addict guy. Uh, <laughs> and trust me, it was just a look. <laughs> it was really working for me. Anyway, um, and sure enough, she had given her life to Christ uh, that morning. I met her that night. And the reason why I'm telling you this story is it seemed like every other night, but you see, it was Susie's heart that said, we should start a Bible study. For all of my friends that don't know the Lord yet, she had just come into an excitement about the Lord and wanted to share that. And she's like, you can teach, we can have it at my apartment. Um, so sure enough, I'm 21 years old and I start doing that. It ends up becoming a home church. There's 120 people in it. And it was this crazy cool thing. As a matter of fact, that some of you were in that home church, that Bible study with me, that you're still with me after all these years. Well, it was Susie that as we did that, another church began to find out about my preaching, and they asked me to guest speak. It was a church called Roseville Hope. And when I came in to guest speak, I wanted to go do something else. I didn't want to be a pastor. But it was Susie's prayers with the Lord that she began to discern, maybe God is in this. She was the one that told me, babe, maybe I, I think that you should pray through this, that maybe God has something he would like to do in this little small church. And you guys, I never left. That's Bridgeway. And so really, everything that I've done in ministry since I was 21 has really been something orchestrated by God through my wife. And you never, yeah, praise God, right? And the reason why I point that out is it didn't seem like a big deal at the time. It seemed like just an everyday occurrence. It seemed like random. It seemed like, oh, you always meet people and you meet people through people and all that stuff. I had no idea it was going to change the trajectory of not only my life, but of tens of thousands of people that I've had an opportunity to minister to. And the reason why I bring all that up is God is incredibly creative in orchestrating our lives. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this, never underestimate God's ability to set up a moment of power. Never underestimate God's ability to set up a moment of power. 
Y'all, I've been in ministry long enough that I've seen God create the most beautiful divine appointments. Whether it was somebody meeting somebody that happened to say something at the right time, that there was an accidental this or an accidental that, but it wasn't accidental. God was moving in it. I've had times when this person happened to be in the right room praying with this person and healing occurred. I've been there where I've seen miracles. What I'm telling you is we got to keep our eyes peeled because God is moving around us all the time. It's not in just the fancy moments. It's in the everyday moments. You guys, I've seen it so much that now I live my life with an anticipation and an expectation that God is going to move, whether I'm at the store, whether I'm at church, whether I'm at home, it doesn't matter. God knows what he's doing and he's moving pieces around because he loves you that much and he's that interested in you. I'm just telling you, we've got to keep our eyes out to look for God, amen? Amen. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 27? Acts chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Uh, If you're not familiar with Scripture, drop it open in the middle. Go to the right. Go really, really, really far to the right. You're going to start hitting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. That's where you want to be. Go to the end of that book, Acts chapter 27, verse 1. Now, last week, Pastor Brian brilliantly was sharing that Paul was on trial He had been grabbed by a radical group of Jews and they wanted him to be killed for blasphemy. They had handed him over to the Roman authorities and he went through one leader after another leader after another leader and they said, yeah, 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 this isn't really our thing. But the other crew would not let it go. As a matter of fact, as frustrating as it was, as crazy as it was, as scary as it was to not know if you're going to live or die, Paul began to see the movement of God in his life because he gave his testimony in front of the highest levels of Roman secular leadership. They would have never listened to his testimony of the gospel if he was not incarcerated with them, if he was not on trial with them. That which was so frustrating for him was for the glory of God. So as he's sharing his testimony, there's more pressure and more pressure. This radical group wouldn't let it go. They were threatening to kill him. If the Roman authorities released him, they would have got him. So he appealed to Caesar. He said, I got to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And when you make that call as a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire, they got to get you there. So they determined they got to get this guy all the way from Jerusalem, Israel, over to Rome, Italy. And that is not an easy trip by water in the winter. As a matter of fact, the whole shipping lanes in the Mediterranean in the ancient world shut down between September, October, and November. It's a three-month no-go window. Currently, we're in October, right in the middle of the worst time of the year. And they got to get him to Italy. Now, if you look at the first eight verses of this passage, you're going to see what you would normally blow past in your private devotion. It is, and then we sailed to this island, then we sailed to this place, and then we sailed to that place. It just looks super boring, and you're like, don't care. So I'm going to kind of break it down for you real easy. They did the most practical route to Italy, and here's how it goes. When it is scary waves you stay close to the shore. They sailed north as far as they could go, then they had to turn left. They sailed as far as they could till they got to open water. Then you hurry and run to an island and hide. 
Then you run to another island and hide, and then you run to another island and hide. That's how you do sailing when you're not supposed to do sailing, right? But what you would have missed is a couple points I want to make that will make this whole story open up for you. It says in there that Paul was under the care of a Roman centurion. That means he's a big dog, he runs a hundred soldiers, he's a high authority. His name was Julius. When we find out he interacts with Paul, it's a really unusual relationship. For whatever reason, he treats Paul different. And I want to talk about why. So, the first thing that we realize is that he has to get Paul to Rome without incident. Why is that? It's a matter of personal pride. And they take it super seriously. The last time there was an assassination attempt on Paul's life, the Roman Empire provided 100 soldiers, 100 spearsmen, and 70 cavalry just to bodyguard him from one location to the next. They don't play around. You mess with the Roman Empire, we'll kill you. That's how it works. So they take it very serious. Number two, they had almost whipped and beat a Roman citizen without due process. They got in trouble for it. So they're a little bit of a, hey, buddy, we're all cool, right? Like, you don't need to be, you don't need to tell on us. We're so they have a little bit of a different posture towards him. Third thing you would have missed, Paul has a weird God favor on him. Have you ever met somebody like this? It seems like everything they do, they have a bit of a weird magnetism to them. They're kind of an X factor. Like, whatever they touch seems to be blessed. Like, like think about the Old Testament Joseph. Whether he's in prison, he's blessed, or he's out of prison, he's blessed. Man, that guy had the Midas touch. Everything he touched turned to gold, right? Paul had that, and so you're going to notice the centurion treats him very kindly. I believe that was the anointing of God. And then finally would be something that you would only know if you did some deeper study. It's going to sound ridiculous, but it matters. Most scholars believe that Julius the centurion was actually a grain ship authority. You're like, what the heck are you talking about? All right, let's be practical. You're the Roman Empire, you run the entire Western world. Your troops, your people, your authority need food when they need it. Doesn't matter what time of the year. How do you run the world? You run it by organization. You become the ancient company of Amazon. You got to find out how to get everything they need, where they need it, overnight, like FedEx, whatever it is, you got to get it there. Everything was oceans away, so they had transport ships, massive grain ships. All of the Roman Empire's grain was all grown in one location, Alexandria, Egypt, on the top of Africa. They had to get it there all over the world instantaneously. If that ship doesn't arrive, people starve. You cannot play. You put an entire army contingent on the ships so that no one ever hijacks pirates or messes with the cargo. Julius was one of those leaders. That's why in the story, you keep seeing him use grain ships and Alexandria is mentioned over and over. All of that begins to give you an insight. Having said all that, let's pick it up in verse 9. 
So much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous due to it being winter because even the Day of Atonement fast of October 5th was already over. So Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage we are on will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Okay, let's pause. Why does he think he can say anything? He's a preacher. Like, what the heck? You're going to stand up in front of a bunch of professionals and go, guys, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think we should sail in the winter. It's pretty rough out there. And normally, it would be kind of weird for him to say anything. Why did he feel like he could? Well, he had an interesting resume. He kind of shipwrecks a lot. Now, it says later on, you're going to find out, we're going to read a story about a shipwreck. That was his third. This poor guy has already shipwrecked twice. And he's kind of like, hey, guys, real quick, before we go, I'm really good at this shipwrecking thing. So it's kind of my thing. (laughs) So anyway, uh, I'm just letting you know it doesn't look good out there. Now, look at the next line. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, I'm not going to sweat this guy. If I was about to have open heart surgery and my surgeon's walking down the hall and a Christian goes, excuse me, I think I know better than you. Okay, I don't want you listening to the weird, creepy Christian. I just want you to, you know what you're doing. Just be my surgeon. Let's just keep moving on. I don't care, right? Get in there. Now, the problem is we're actually talking to Paul the Apostle and he's right, okay? So we pick it up in verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. And it went well for a while. Go to verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the tall Mount Ida on land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running along under the windbreak of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to bring on board the ship's small dinghy boat that was strapped to the front, taking on water and shoving the nose down. After hoisting it up by sheer muscle, they used cables to undergird the ship for the hull protection. Then fearing they would run aground on the sandbars, they lowered the heavier floating anchor rig to balance them out on the massive waves, and thus they were driven along. Hmm. Question, why does God let bad stuff happen to Christians? Your life hasn't been easy, yes? I don't have to convince you of this, right? Okay, you would assume that If Paul's on the boat, we find out Aristarchus, his ministry partner's on the boat. Luke seems to be on the boat. A bunch of Christians seem to be on the boat. And if they're on the boat, don't you think the Holy Spirit's on the boat? Don't you think God's on the boat? And if God's on the boat, don't you think it should be much smoother sailing? Because that's what we always assume. That if God was around, things would go easy. But that's not how it works. It's funny, you get saved and you're like, I thought there'd be more perks. (laughs) right? You know, like, man, I became a Christian, and I was like, man, my life just still seems to be rather difficult. Okay, now, it's not that there's not deep perks, right? I mean, we're talking about peace and joy and everything that matters, but when I'm talking about stuff, when I'm talking about life, I'm just saying it doesn't automatically get easier. It gets sometimes more difficult. And I'm going to highlight a couple times in this sermon an analogy of trying to think about it through the lens of kids. Imagine if I was to interview your kids about your parenting, right? You make them do really weird stuff. 
right? For example, you make them do chores. Like, what are you looking for free labor? What is wrong with you? You know that you as a parent can vacuum better than them. Why are you having them vacuum, right? And sure enough, you know that they're probably going to drop a dish. Why would you have them unload the dishwasher? That seems like a very poor choice. Then you make them eat gross stuff like broccoli, right? Asparagus. You know, those have effects on the body, if you know what I'm talking about. So why would you force that stuff upon your children, you monsters? What's intriguing is that as a parent, you're preparing them for the next. They don't have the maturity or the insight to know that or appreciate that. Do you really believe that what is happening to you in this life is it? He's preparing you for the next. The majority of your life is not yet begun. You go, but I don't understand. Like my whole life, I've been in a wheelchair. My whole life, I've had to deal with mental health issues. My whole life, and it doesn't look like it's clearing anytime soon. You keep talking as if this life is it. No, 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 you have to understand. Your super long life, you don't wrestle with any of that. In your next life, you run, you jump, you play. In your next life, you don't have the same sin problems. You don't have the same broken problems. You don't have the same mental health problems. He knows that. So right now, he's maximizing prep time. And I know it's not what you want. I know it seems monstrous. I know it seems weird. I know it seems uncomfortable. But he knows what he's doing. Hmm. Believers have always questioned God's love for them when things get hard. Is that true? Lazarus dies, his sisters, Jesus' best friends, lay into him. If you were here, this never would have happened. What, what they're saying is you don't care enough. Why would you let this happen? His own disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee. He's asleep in the boat. A storm comes up. They scream in his face, don't you care if we drown? All those comments were made to a man on the way to the cross to die for the sins of the world. We keep assuming that our discomfort means lack of his love, and that's not true. It's really complicated, and if he told you, you wouldn't understand, right? Verse 18, since we were so violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison or throw overboard the personal passenger cargo to lighten the load and let the ship ride higher in the water. And on the third day, they threw the ship's extra gear overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for 11 days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Let's pause for a moment. The pros gave up. Man, when the professionals say we're doomed, it's not good. So normally, whenever I fly, I'm not, a, I'm not a really great person in a plane. That's part of the mental health challenges I have. And so I'm not a big fan of turbulence. Now, turbulence is part of flying. It's how it's supposed to go. It's just like a boat has waves. Planes have waves. But for whatever reason to me, it strikes terror into my heart. <laughs> so one of the ways that I compensate is I always watch the flight attendant's eyes. If they're not concerned, I shouldn't be concerned. If they're concerned, something's seriously wrong, right? And so I'm always watching them because if they're still serving beverages, we're all right. 
right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, what did happen? They're like, do, do, do. They're walking down. You're like, oh, we're all cool, guys. We're fine. Hang out, right? Uh, the, the sailors, everybody, they've abandoned hope. They've already been through rough storms. They've already been through terrible things. They're giving up. And before you read ahead and go, well, I'm sure it turned out okay, they don't know that. As a matter of fact, Paul the apostle himself is freaking out. He's scared too. Well, I thought best good Christians don't get afraid. That's incorrect. They're still human. So he's freaking out. They're freaking out. And this is the time, this is one of my favorite verses to argue the point that people say, you know, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. I don't even know what you're talking about. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Not only that, right here it says, all hope was abandoned. That sounds like more than you can handle. Yeah? And on a serious note, I've had Christians that I love take their lives. So I'm not quite sure what you're saying is more than you can handle, but please don't play that game because what you're saying is God will never let super bad stuff happen. What I'm here to tell you is God said, I will either get you out of it or through it. That's what he said. But sometimes bad stuff happens. So sure enough, it says everything was getting crazy. It was a dark, dark night. And then it says this, verse 21. Since they had been without food for almost two weeks, Paul stood up among them and said, man, you should have listened to me, which is always nice to hear when things are terrible. <laughs> you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred all this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Okay, a couple things we need to know about this. Paul stands up and he's like, guys, we're going to be okay. Now, you got to assume at that moment, they're like, this guy just keeps mouthing off, right? And he says, let me tell you why. An angel came to me personally last night. I was freaking out. First thing he said to me was, Paul, don't be afraid. He only would say that if I was afraid. And he said, I got you. And I got the entire crew. They're gonna be okay. But I need you to listen to me and I need you to do it my way. Because we're going to get through this. Right? Guys, I'm talking about an angel from the God to whom I, I know y'all are pagan, believe in all these different gods. Listen, it's different with my God. I belong to him. I worship him. He's my everything. And he personally sent one of his messengers to be with me in my darkest hour. But he said that his grace and mercy would pour over on you. So I want you to be encouraged. You may not believe in my God, but every time he says it, it's a lock. We're going to be okay. But we got a shipwreck. You know, it's interesting because we assume that if God shows up with good news, he's going to be like, and it's over. He's like, and it's going to get worse. But he came to you in the darkness and said, I got you. He didn't say everything's easy now. He said, I'm on the job. And that's very, very important because we have to be able to receive the love and encouragement of God even when everything doesn't clear yet, right? Right? He's like, we got some more stuff we got to walk through. We have to have these God encounters. There are some of us in this church that are still way too cerebral. 
You are all about, I get it, I'm analytical guy, I'm logic guy, but some of us are living in the keep God at arm's distance, I don't want to get involved in anything weird like prayer or healing, or I don't want to have any of this stuff about whether or not there's a supernatural world, I just want it sanitized, clean, I don't want to raise my hands in worship, I just want to know my God intellectually. I'm telling you right now, on the worst day of your life, that's not going to cut it. You need to default back into a relationship and a time when God rescued you in a very powerful way. If you keep avoiding weird, you're going to keep avoiding God. I get it. You don't want to get into the weird. God, by definition, is supernatural. He's weird. Avoid weird, avoid God. What I'm telling you is sometimes we are allowed to be emotional. Sometimes we are encouraged to cry and connect. Sometimes we are encouraged to pray and lay it all out on the table. We don't always get to act stoic and believe that we're bonding with our God. We gotta watch that. Pick it up in verse 24. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land because they could hear the waves hitting the rocks. So they took a depth measurement and found it to be 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, which meant it was getting shallower. Fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four grounding, heavy, stopping anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for light to come so they could see what they're dealing with. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, what? And had lowered the ship's lifeboat dinghy into the sea under the lying pretense, oh, we're just laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, none of us are going to make it. Then the soldiers cut away the rope of the ship's dinghy and let it float away. Now they're committed. Interesting. First of all, what the heck are the sailors doing? Dude, you got a crew of 276 people. And what, you're going to bail? You're the only one that knows how to steer the ship. You're basically condemning everybody else to die because you want to save your own skin. But hold on. Is that not human nature? Self-preservation. When we get really desperate, did they not just hear from some man of God that God had a plan and they were all going to make it through, right? Didn't God say he had a better way, but you got to trust him, right? You see, when you're desperate, sometimes you're not listening anymore. All you can see is I need alleviation of my problem. I don't see God coming through in a relationship. I don't see God coming through in happiness. I don't see God coming through with cash. I don't see God coming through with a job. I'm going to do what I need to do, right? But I thought you heard a man of God say that if you don't stick with Jesus, it's going to lead to more loss. You listen, right? He said, unless these guys stay in the ship, we're not going to make it. We need these guys for the last leg. You need to shut it down. Centurion's like, all right. First of all, why is Paul the only one that notices this? What is he like, the little spy guy running around? Like everybody else is totally clueless, right? But somehow he notices, he's like, guys, you got to shut that down. So they shut it down. They commit in. The one thing that I want you to hear, though, is that he said, if you guys don't hang with me, you're not going to make it. This is a Jesus statement. 
Did he not say the same thing? Guys, I'm a savior. I rescue people. I'm going to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, you got to hang with me. See, this is where a lot of people have this weird misconception about Christianity that we think that Christianity is right because we're smarter than everybody. That is incorrect. Christianity teaches that we're not very smart at all and we are in desperate need of rescue and only one rescuer ever showed up. Nobody else claimed to be a rescuer. We need the rescuer. But the only way to get rescued by a rescuer is to hang out with the rescuer. If you go off and do your own thing, you're not gonna get rescued. Here's my point. If you do not cling to the Savior, you're not going to heaven. I get it. In modern day world, everybody's like hodgepodge their religion together. I believe in this, believe in that, believe in this, believe. I don't know how much you can believe in this and believe in that and still believe in Jesus. And once you drop Jesus, once Jesus is not supreme, once Jesus is not the king, once Jesus is not your savior, you don't have a savior. You better have another plan, yeah? There's only one way because there's only one rescuer. That's all. So we hang on to him. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged. Then they all ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship even further by throwing out their personal food and the cargo into the sea. Praise the Lord, a Christian was there. Nobody wanted to eat. Everybody was afraid. But the Christian stood up with the faith of God and told them the truth. Do you understand you're that Christian? I mean, so many of us are lamenting the world we live in is so dark. Why do you think you're there? You're the light. I think if you interviewed any flashlight today, they would say, wow, it's really dark out there. And you're like, well, that's why you're here. You're a flashlight. You see, you only use flashlights in the dark. You only use candles in the dark. So if you're in a place where you're surrounded by darkness, you might be the flashlight. You might be the light. You might be the candle. You might be the only hope. There's a reason why your salt and light spread out. If you only get to hang around a bunch of Christians and everybody that agrees with you, what good is that? Paul and his buddies were very few on a big ship with a bunch of people that didn't believe in God. But praise the Lord, they were there because God's favor upon them poured out. I would suggest to you that there are many areas of the world, including our nation, that God would come in with judgment if it wasn't for Christians being there. We are the sustaining preservation factor. Mm. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize, the sailors didn't recognize this island from this angle, but they noticed a bay in front of them with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cut free the four heavy anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, they loosened the ropes that tied the rudders so they could steer. Then raising the smaller steering sail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The front of the boat was stuck, and it remained immovable. The back of the boat was being broken up by the heavy waves of the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest any swim away and escape, and they have to die for it. 
But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, make for land, and the rest who couldn't swim to just float on planks or pieces of the ship to shore. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Anybody know that what that bay is called where they crash landed? It's called St. Paul's Bay. You think he would have known? No, that was named afterwards. Okay, so you can go over there. It's actually a tourist spot now uh, on the island of Malta. There is a bay called St. Paul's Bay just marking this exact scenario because it's such a big deal. I don't think Paul would have been like, yay, I love that bay. <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty rough. But you have to ask the question again, why did all this have to happen? Couldn't God have just put it on somebody's mind that they needed to stop at Malta? I get it, it wasn't on the docket and we needed to do some special stuff there. But isn't there another way? Because that's what we keep asking about our lives. Can't there be another way? Lord, I can think about 13 different scenarios that don't go like this. But let's say he did it another way. Because we keep thinking the whole goal is to get from A to B the seamless way possible. God is interested in the journey along the way, creating relationship. So if everything would have been cool, 276 people wouldn't have watched God send an angel in the darkest time of their life and be impacted for the, by the gospel, watching it lived out by a Christian in desperate times. This was purposeful. You're like, yeah, but did it? I don't understand. Okay, I'm gonna go back to the parenting analogy. Has anybody ever had the experience of, as a parent taking a young child out of Disneyland at night? Anybody ever had that experience? It is the saddest thing you will ever experience. They are so sad. I don't wanna go. And they're just crying on, you're carrying them. And they're so tired, they can't even walk anymore. They're like, you go, babe, you're so tired. No, I can do more. And you're like, no, you can't do more. And you know, they've eaten 13 churros, their tummy's like, and, and you're like, and you're like, babe. I, now in that moment, are they gonna listen to reason? No, they're way too emotionally involved. Not only that, what are you gonna tell them? I mean, anything you're gonna tell them doesn't make sense to them, they're four. What are you gonna be like, hey, you know what, we gotta pace ourselves, we got tomorrow, and blah, 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 blah. You're gonna tell them, boom, right over their head. At some point, you're like, you would, mom is done, right? I mean, that's, that's really where you end up. <laughs> mom is over, we're not doing this anymore, kiddo. Like we're not, now they don't understand limitations and what does it mean about this? And, and wow, boy, it's really expensive to be, every time you're another hour in Disneyland, you lost another fortune, right? So <laughs> they don't understand any of this stuff. And, and it wouldn't make sense if you told them, but boy, they're desperate. I just want one more ride. Okay. You think that's any different than how God carries us through life? God, I don't understand. Shouldn't go like this. Doesn't need to be. Hey, kiddo, I would love to explain it to you. Right now, you're pretty emotional, and I don't think you'd get it. I'm not a bad guy. I'm the one who took you to Disneyland in the first place. <laughs> Chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, pause. What definition of safely are you working with? <laughs> You're like, uh, no. We shipwrecked, okay. 
after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, they welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a poisonous snake came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice hasn't allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. What the heck? This is a weird story, right? The only way to understand this story is to memorize this phrase. Paul is a boss. That's what, that, that's what you need to memorize. Why? Dude, the guy just got shipwrecked and he's like, I'll get firewood. You're like, dude, just chill out, bro. Hang out by the fire. I got stuff to do. Gotta go. And he's grabbing. He's like, ooh, more wood, more wood. And he's grabbing this wood and he grabs this whole pile and there's a viper in it. The viper is just like, I feel really cold. I can't move, right? All of a sudden they get near the fire. The viper's like, yeah, yeah. Rawr! And he just bites him. And it, you got to imagine that moment. Paul's like, God, come on. What the heck is this? Dude, I'm a good guy. Get good. And then like a boss shakes it off. And he's like, anyway. You're like, dude, <laughs> that was a poisonous snake. You're going to die. <laughs> my favorite part of the whole story is all the natives are like, ooh, watch him. <laughs> you would assume that they're being really nice. They're like, oh, you got to suck the poison out, bro. I got something for that. Nope. They're like, watch him. And they're like, dude, oh my gosh, he's bloating. Look at him bloating. He's getting fatter. Oh my gosh, he's going to die. And they're like, he's a total murderer. And you're like... <laughs> Wow, that's a label that you put on pretty quick. And then they're watching, they're watching, they're like, ah, boring. All right, whatever. Anyway, I think the dude's a god. <laughs> Pendulum swing, right? Never let a human being tell you your identity or your worth. They don't know what they're talking about. Your creator can tell you, your king can tell you, your Lord can tell you, but human beings do not have a big enough sample size to know what the heck they're talking about. And they're going to say things, whether well-intentioned or not, that are not true. You, if you give your life to Jesus, and even if you don't, there's a mark of God on you. You were made in the image of God. There is an honor and a respect of that. But if you're a child of God, you are priceless. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Someone else dictates your worth. Jesus determined you are worth dying for. Every item is ultimately measured in value by what someone's willing to pay for it and he would pay his life. What I'm telling you is you are precious. You are under grace. You are chosen. You are valuable. And I don't care what the world has to say. Your heavenly Father gets to tell you. Amen? Praise God. Yeah. So what happens? Uh, the, the chief's dad is sick, 
And Paul's like, oh, that's weird. I'm a healer. <laughs> so he's like, can I see your dad? And his dad's dying, and he lays hands on him, and he's healed. And they're like, whoa, I didn't know you could do that. That's awesome. They grab all the sick of the whole island. They have this huge healing service. And they're like, man, this is so awesome. And there's this big revival. Why do you think God took him to Malta? Because they all needed the gospel. And it was never on the docket. But sure enough, it says, and when it was time, they stayed there for the rest of the winter. When it was time to go, it says they reloaded us on a new ship with everything we needed. You guys, too many times we have loss in our life. You're not going to get that back, but God's going to get you back what you need. Because sometimes we lament stuff and stuff comes and goes. Sometimes he lightens your load because you never needed it in the first place. He knows what you need to get there. And sure enough, they sail on a new grain ship. Why did they get a new grain ship? Because they got big dog Julius, who went on the other side of the island and said, I'll take that one, thank you. Grab a new ship, sail, they made it, just like God said so. In Rome, Paul is under guard, he's chained to a, a Roman soldier. But for two years, he gets to live there, under guard, in his own apartment talks to the Jewish leaders, and he's like, guys, I know the Messiah. And they're like, well, I don't know if you do. Some of them agreed, some of them didn't. He said, you know who is really listening, though? The Gentiles. So I got to tell you right now, you will always be my family, you'll always be my brothers, but I'm called to go talk to people that are willing to listen. I'm out. And it says for two years, he spoke boldly about the kingdom of God, unhindered. Question for you, how did he get to do that unhindered when everywhere he's gone, he's had that same radical group trying to kill him? How did he do it? Because he had a little jing-a-ling-a-ling guy attached to him, which is what? A Roman soldier. They don't kill you when a Roman soldier is chained to you. What feels like one of the worst parts of your life became his bodyguard, and God used it for good. And he was able to share the gospel in Rome unhindered. You guys, all I'm telling you is you may think it's every day. It's not every day, not to God. Even while you sleep, he is orchestrating your life. He's moving pieces around. He's shifting things in the universe. Why? Because he loves you that much. As we leave here, keep our eyes open. He's moving, amen? Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Let's close. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. The Lord God, your word has given us encouragement this morning that, Lord, even though we don't get it, we trust you. You're the better parent. And Lord, I know that we lament and we weep and we cry and we moan and we hurt. But God, you know what's best. You know what the bigger life looks like that we're walking into. You know what you can and cannot do and still hold our heart. You are not afraid of what we're afraid of. God, may we walk out of here with a courage and a boldness with no hindrance because even that which is chained to us, you can redeem. So God, I just pray that we would walk out with eyes to see. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.